Blog Talk Radio. My name is Randy Zillia, joined by, always by the man behind the microphone, the man behind the pen, the man behind the keyboard, the man behind the force, the man behind the dark side. His name is Bill Ingram. And Bill, good uh, good evening, good afternoon. How are you, my friend? Oh, wait, put your intro. Yes. Hmm? <laughs> Doing well. How are you? <laughs> I, I figured I, we're, get, we're getting close, man. We're getting close to the Rise of Skywalker, so... I'm just trying not to think about it because all these teasers are coming out, all this stuff about, oh, you know, and the trailers and, okay, nope, 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 nope. (laughs) Don't want to read it. Don't want to see it. It's, it's, uh, you know, J.J. Abrams and in J.J. I trust. Uh, Ryan Anderson, not so much, but J.J., we're good to go. Now, before we uh, jump into our topic this week, and we changed our topic. I think we changed it like five times this week, and we were like, ah, which one should we go with? And then it turned into, all right, we're going to do Tim Duncan. <laughs> so, but before we jump into <laughs> Tim Duncan, we can let everybody know where they can find us. We can go to backsportspage.com. Uh, for all the archives of the show, you can also listen to us on Spotify, iTunes, iMusic, where all you listen to all your podcasts, we're there. Just look us up under Backsports Page, uh, Hoops Talk and Hoops Talk Live. Uh, you can follow Bill on Twitter at the Rocket Guy. You can follow me on Twitter and on Instagram at Randy BSP. And of course, follow Back Sports Page at Back Sports Page, BackSportsPage.com. And before we jump into Mr. Duncan, I wanted to get some uh, some feedback from you. What was the reaction that you got from our episode last week on the NBA All Star Slam Dunk Contest? Well, that's clearly um, the reason we picked that was because many many people, especially today's generation of NBA players look back at Vince Carter's dunk, you know, that, that performance in the dunk contest as the greatest of all time. Granted, they didn't watch Dominique and Jordan go head to head, which is where I would find my personal favorites. Uh, but, uh, Hey, you know, the, the feedback was that's one of my, lots of people told me that's my all time favorite, you know, Vince Carter's the best ever. And like, okay, good. Well, that, we picked the right topic then. <laughs> Yeah, it was the general feeling I got, or I or I got um, feedback was the likes on how we were able to really talk about not only the actual contest but what led into it and the effect 
it had and, we, and how it sort of that generation of Vince Carter and Tracy McGrady and Kobe and Shaq was that bridge. And when LeBron got there, it was like when Jordan really came into his own, there was the other members of the league that were the, the marquee matchups for Jordan. When LeBron came in, these were the guys that were going to go head-to-head with LeBron. So it was very – it was I mean, the feedback I got was very, very good. I'm glad you got some good feedback from it as well. And uh, now we're going to transition over to a guy who you've seen more of than, uh, than I have through his career because he played down in uh, Texas, Tim Duncan. And let's give a little bit of background of what happened here um, on how this, ha- this happened before we jump into, jump into Tim Duncan. Let's look at the NBA perspective. The San Antonio Spurs were a playoff team uh, with, with Western David Conference Robinson. finalists. Yeah, yeah, Western Conference finalists with David Robinson, Sean Elliott, uh, Avery Johnson. Pretty solid team. I, I don't remember if Avery was there at that point, but Tim, uh, not Tim, uh, for yeah. a little while they had Dennis Rodman as well. Uh, before, before Duncan got there, I'm trying just to look at the, the, the team. And then David Robinson got hurt during the 96-97 season. And I know you had right. some stories about Dominique in there. But David Robinson went down with a, with a bad injury and was out the whole entire season. So you were covering the league at that point. Talk to me what was going on in San Antonio around this time. Well, essentially you had the, the, the team that had been very good but denied a trip to the finals by Olajuwon, particularly in, in 95 my all-time favorite Western Conference Finals because uh, David Robinson was named MVP. Hakeem had been named, Olajuwon had been named uh, MVP in 94. But in 95, they gave it to David Robinson. And we all know there's some politics. It's, not, it's very hard to say who's the most valuable player. But Hakeem took that personally because he had a brilliant year in 1995. And they went on to win the championship, of course. He completely torched I mean, David Robinson got spanked like he was a junior high kid playing at the pro level. Olajuwon was <laughs> around him, over him, through him, by him. David, who was a very good uh, defensive player, couldn't even begin to figure out where Hakeem was. And one of my all-time favorite pictures, I still have it. I cut it out of the Houston Post, which isn't even around anymore. But it's a picture of uh, David Robinson on his hands and knees looking back over his shoulder at the basket where Akeem is dunking the ball because he's done one of these just brilliant, crazy spin, you know, drop step, dream shake, fake, fake, fake. You're on the ground. He spins and dunks it. And there's a shot that's one of my all-time favorite pictures in sports, maybe my all-time favorite. Uh, But David Robinson had zero ability to contain Akeem. And when the Rockets eliminated, and, and there was a great moment, where Akeem, he was so hot, he's pulling up for, th- for three, okay? And Bob Hill, who was the coach of the Spurs at the time, is waving, don't leave him open, don't leave him open at the three-point line. And Akeem drilled the three. It was a thorough and complete decimation. It was a nuclear holocaust of the San Antonio Spurs <laughs> by Akeem. And uh, Akeem then went and found David Robinson in the uh, parking garage, the player's parking garage, and said, man, you're the best player in the league, and I just got lucky. I read about this in, in a King's book, Living the Dream, and 
he's so humble and so Hakeem was never one to take credit or he would go out and destroy you. But then after the game, he'd be like, Oh, I just got lucky, you know? And uh, I just thought one of the all time great things, but that, that spelled the beginning of the end for the Sean Elliott. Uh, you mentioned Robin was there part of it, uh, but David Robinson, Avery Johnson, that was the beginning of the end of that generation of San Antonio Spurs. So when David Robinson went down and missed, you know, all those all those games, there wasn't really. It's not like Sean Elliott and Avery, like these guys were not in their primes to where they'd be decent without him. And the Spurs wound up signing uh, Dominique Wilkins, who had a had a brilliant year, but they lost like every night to wind up getting that number one pick the next year, which turned into Tim Duncan. Well, and it's funny, too, we talked about the depleted roster uh, for the San Antonio Spurs. They finished out that season. They were 20-62. and 62. Bob Hill uh, was removed as head coach of the team. And listen to this roster for the 96-97 San Antonio Spurs. Corey Alexander, Greg Anderson, Vinny Del Negro, there's a name, uh, Sean Elliott, mm-hmm. Jamie Fike, Carl Herrera, Avery Johnson, Vernon Maxwell, Will Perdue, Chuck Person on the squad, but he was injured all year. David Robinson only played nine games. Uh, see, we knew we knew there was life after the Knicks basketball for him. Charles Smith was there. Dominique Wilkins and Monty Williams. So this team, again, without David Robinson and an injured Chuck, uh, Chuck Person, finished 20 and 62 and finished with the number one uh, draft, number one overall draft pick. They finished um, they finished sixth in the division only ahead of Vancouver Grizzlies, who finished with 14 wins. The Spurs finished 20, 20, uh, you know, 20 wins and 13th out of 14th in the conference, which led them to the 1997 NBA draft, where a young player from Wake Forest University, uh, University from the Virgin Islands, Mr. Tim Duncan. Who wanted to be a swimmer. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, his yeah, aspiration okay, was to be a, an Olympic swimmer. <laughs> All right, so you you know we're going to um, you you're going to tell that story right now. So we're we're not we're not moving forward till that story is told. <laughs> well, yeah, Tim Duncan had every every uh, intention of being a professional swimmer, an Olympic swimmer was his aspiration. But um, then there was a, as I recall, there was a hurricane. Something took out like swimming suddenly became not available to him. And so it was sort of like, uh, okay, then I guess I'll try, oh, I don't know, basketball. <laughs> and all of a sudden, like, it, he just had a gift, uh, you know, and some of these incredibly, the all-time greats, there's ability, there's athleticism, but the all-time greats, there's something else. There's a, a gift from the basketball gods who reach down and determine that, you know, Bill Russell, uh, Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, you know, these guys, there's something beyond desire to win. There's something beyond athleticism. There's something else that you cannot quantify. And Tim Duncan had that. So when he started to play basketball, it was an immediate click. And he, I mean... (laughs) You go from not really caring too much about basketball to being the greatest power forward and one of the greatest players to ever play the game. 
it's just an incredible uh, story. I, I've I've always loved his story, despite how hard he ever was to actually talk to. <laughs> <laughs> well, he said he's even though he's a United States citizen by birth, uh, as well as well, natives of the U.S., the Virgin Islands, he represented the United States internationally, but again, from the Virgin Islands. And he was obviously pick number one. Uh, if you look back, I'll do the top ten of that draft class. You had Duncan number one. Keith Van Horn chose, uh, chose by Philly, but traded on draft night to New Jersey with the second pick. Chauncey Billups picked by the Boston Celtics at three. Antonio Daniels <laughs> picked by the Grizzlies at four. Tony Batiste for the Nuggets at five. Ron Mercer, who was, originally, was picked by the Boston Celtics, but it was a pick from the Mavericks originally, at six. Tim Thomas at seven by the Nets, who was traded to Philly at seven. Adonal Foyle to the Golden State Warriors at eight. Some guy by the name of Tracy McGrady at nine by the Toronto Raptors. <laughs> and Danny Forston with the Milwaukee Bucks at ten. What do you remember from it's not one of those class? drafts where you go – Maybe the top pick wasn't the right pick that year. (laughs) But you know what, though? If you look back at it, you look at the top three – oh, just look at the top three picks. Duncan, obviously, was very successful. Van Horn did not have a bad career. Um, He just got saddled with Stephon Marbury for a couple years. Yeah, Van Horn was a very good – the problem is people wanted him to be something that he wasn't. He was was never going to be a number one Mm -hmm. guy. He was a great number two, number three option. He just happens to be yep. the second pick. And when he came out of when he came out of college and he played with the Nets his first year, they played the Bulls in the first round, and Van Horn played very, very, very well. But then they made a deal. If you for could Stephon get a Marbury Keith Van Horn, if you get Keith Van Horn stats out of a number two pick, you have done very well with your number two pick. I mean, there, there's just no question. Yeah. He had a really good yeah. career. You know, I just think because. I think that people look at him was if you couldn't play with Jason Kidd. Cause remember the year after uh, they made the finals, they, <laughs> the Nets traded him to Philly for to Kevin Mutombo yep. because they wanted help against Shaq. And I guess Jason and <laughs> Keith just didn't see eye to eye. So if you can't play with Jason Kidd on the court, maybe you shouldn't be playing. That's what a lot of people said. And then you have Chauncey Billups, who obviously his career was an amazing one. NBA champion with the Detroit. Yeah, Bears. after. After Boston, after Denver, when he finally found his niche, he did. He was he, I mean, he was a champion. You know, he was great. But yeah. it's funny you say that about that, Keith Van Horn and Jason Kidd not seeing eye to eye. Because I was just yesterday, I was having a conversation with an NBA executive who shall remain name, nameless. And we were kind of breaking down the West because it's kind of what we do. We like to, you know, we kind of we kind of see everything the same way. So it's fun to just, just sit down and look at all the teams. Besides his, because he won't comment on his even off the record, really. Um, but we were talking <laughs> about the Lakers, and he said, you know, one of the serious issues that's going to be an issue for the Lakers this year is Jason Kidd and Frank Vogel, because Frank Vogel is a, a very good coach in his own right, but Jason Kidd has to have things his way and, and will not listen to any other point of view. And that's why he struggled so much in New Jersey. It's why he struggled so – I mean, as a coach in his coaching. Uh, and he struggled in Milwaukee. And now – because he had uh, uh, Lawrence Frank the first time around, and Lawrence Frank thought he was the head coach. <laughs> and and Kid didn't take that too kindly. And in Milwaukee, they kind of gave him the reins, but he rubbed a lot of his players the wrong way. 
So now he's in L.A. in the Lake with the Lakers, where LeBron thinks he's the one who runs the team, <laughs> and like he said, that's if you're looking for a reason why the Lakers don't win the championship this year, Jason Kidd and his inflexibility may be one of those reasons. Wow, well, he's had that reputation of being difficult and, in some senses, even a coach killer. But looking back, I'm sorry, I want to go back to one thing with Tim Duncan. He's, uh, I found an article here. Duncan started as an aspiring swimmer and did not begin playing basketball until ninth grade when Hurricane Hugo destroyed the only available Olympic-sized pool in his homeland uh, in the Virgin Islands. Right, I thought there was a, a hurricane involved in that, yeah. So you, you were right on the money, Hurricane Hugo. Uh, Duncan played for Wake Forest, and in, in the senior year, he he earned the John Wooden Award, as well as the Naismith College Player of the Year and the USBWA College Player of the Year. And after graduating, Duncan went on to the, win the NBA Rookie of the Year after being selected by San Antonio with the first pick in the 1997 draft. Um, you know, and if you look back at his stats for his rookie season. This is a, this is a, you find me, again, I always find value of college and being a senior coming out because you're ready to play. You don't, there's not yep. much growth. Especially you're gonna do. a program you're, like Wake Forest. There's not much adjusting. You're going you're gonna to make adjustments, but not as much as, say, if you're coming after your freshman or sophomore year. Duncan didn't miss a game. He averaged 39 minutes a game, shot 54% from the field, almost 55%. If you can if you can nitpick anything, you can nitpick his free throw shooting. He was only a 66% free throw shooter his rookie year. Average 11 boards a game, a little bit under three assists, about two and a half block shots a game, and averaged 21 points. That's a rookie I want on my team. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and he went on to – I mean, he extended David Robinson's career and made and took well, and him to was, the championship. Well, that was going to be my next question. Again, you were down in – you were down covering the NBA around this point. Can you talk about the sacrifice that David Robinson had to make for Tim Duncan? Because obviously by, by bringing in a guy like Tim Duncan, David was going to have to sacrifice some scoring. He was going to have to sacrifice being the man there to help almost, you know, help get along to get, you know, move along to get along type of mentality with Duncan. Can you talk about the dynamic, what you saw at that point in time? And how, and how it worked for them. Well, you really have to give David Robinson credit. David knew that he was not he, – he recognized that he wasn't Batman anymore. He needed to be Robin. And he saw in Tim Duncan that thing that we were just – I was just talking about, the thing that you can't really quantify, but that thing, David saw that in Tim Duncan right away. And as such, he was, you know, David was not, a, had no ego at all. I mean, he was, he was a killer on the court, but he was always just the nicest guy. Uh, no ego, not an a-hole like many of the stars of the greatest players of all time. Uh, I'll put Larry Bird as the number one a-hole, but uh, David was never that and still is it. He, he was always an incredible gentleman off the court. Um, and he recognized that in Tim Duncan and had the wherewithal to say, okay, this kid needs the ball, and I need to compliment him. And that's what he did. And I really think, you know, maybe Tim 
uh, maybe David doesn't get enough credit for that because there aren't many players who could who could look at themselves honestly and look at a rookie honestly and say, uh, granted, there haven't been that many rookies that were so much better than a great veteran that was destined for the Hall of Fame. But David was able to look at Tim Duncan and recognize that that thing was there, that Tim was ready right out of college. Granted, Wake Forest, great program. But he was there already. And David was willing to uh, not only defer, but really mentor Tim and in, and enable him to be the dominant player on the team, despite the fact that David was only a couple years removed from his own MVP. You know, I mean, it just the entire situation. And then Greg Popovich as a young, you know, new head coach there, recognizing what needed to be done. The entire situation was so uh, special that even though I didn't grow up in San Antonio, in fact, the Spurs were the rivals of my hometown Rockets and my, my grandparents, and my sister lived in San Antonio. It was a big family thing, you know, oh, Spurs. But when I watched that transpire, the whole, the way that David uh, set up and deferred to Tim, the way that Tim just walked out and was amazing, and the way that Popovich handled the situation uh, made me a Spurs fan because of the way it, the business of it went about. I couldn't help but admire the team. And it was a team I, I was only a fan of one, well, really two teams growing up, the Blazers with Clyde Drexler and the Rockets with Akeem Olajuwon. Didn't care at all about any other team. But when I watched that play out firsthand, it really made me admire and even become a fan of the San Antonio Spurs. Which was almost sacrilegious at that point. <laughs> so <laughs> absolutely. Hey, Rockets, you you're not a fan of you you hate the Spurs, you hate the Mavericks. It's a huge rivalry in both cases. And the last thing you're gonna do is appreciate either of those teams. But like I say, it took a lot. But it took a lot for that situation to happen the way it did. So boom, all of a sudden you're watching that play out and you're going, ah, even as a you know, someone who didn't care about the Spurs at all. They were rivals. I couldn't help but go, gosh, wow, what a what a situation. I, I just, you know, you just have to admire it. Even, I mean, I've got Spurs t-shirts <laughs> dating back to those days uh, because I just was overwhelmed by that, the, the whole situation. It was so special. What was even more, uh, more interesting is in his, in a, you know, his rookie season, he was Qualified for the NBA playoffs, they were the fifth seed. Uh, Duncan had a bad first half in the first game against the Phoenix Suns, and Danny Ainge uh, decided to give Duncan a little bit less, a little bit less pressure. And he finished with 32 points and 10 boards in the in game one, which led to them with a three-to-one series victory over the Phoenix Suns. They lost to the Utah Jazz in round two. Listen to this stat line for your rookie year in the playoffs: nine games, 41 minutes, 52% from the field. Free throw percentage stayed pretty much the same. Nine boards, two and a half blocks per game, and 20 points a game. So not a bad way to enter the NBA if you're Tim Duncan. Absolutely. And he never became a great free throw shooter overall, but in the clutch, he always knocked them down. Very much so. And he was, and he was, he was dangerous. Now, now this was a very tough time in the NBA. The Bulls win their third straight championship. And I think because of 
the lockout situation, the, the league loses Jordan. They come back. They have a shortened season. San Antonio, San Antonio pretty much uh, goes through the league and goes into the Western Conference Finals. Take us back a little bit to what the about the resolve of the lockout. Talk about what the, the state of the league was at that point, right? Just around that point. Well, yeah, it was tough because there was the league was not at its height at that time. And there was talk that if the league locked out, it might really struggle to win fans back. I, I remember that being a very real um, threat that people were talking about. The, the NBA was not what it is now and not what it was in the 80s and 90s. It was in that between time that we talked about last week when with the Vince Carter stuff where a lot of big names had retired and, and were retiring or were at, towards the end of their careers. And it was a real question mark whether, you know, could, could the NBA recover from all those retirements? And the lockout was like just pouring acid on the fire. I mean, it was, it was like, and you're going to lock out. You're going to have this big issue where a bunch of games are missed and, and you're going to have to deal with the fact that now you've disenfranchised fans over games being locked out. Fans don't want to hear about millionaires arguing with billionaires over a few hundred thousand dollars. You know, that, that whole thing played out and at the worst time that it possibly could have played out as far as the fan base was concerned. So uh, when you have a situation like San Antonio emerge out of that, it's like a huge positive because the Spurs went on to be the dominant team of the NBA for the next 20, 20 years. And, and if the, uh, well, last year, Greg Popovich became the first coach ever in any sport to make the playoffs 23 consecutive years. The only one close was Jerry Sloan, longtime head coach of the Utah Jazz. He did it 21 times. So the level of success that came out of that really tough, difficult situation, the level of success that – and, it, hey, Tim Duncan was the main reason for most of that. Popovich had a lot to do with it. But Tim Duncan was the centerpiece of that team – as Avery and David and Sean, and they, they're all on the sidelines watching, you know, Sean Elliott doing commentary, Avery Johnson's head coach of the Mavericks. Tim Duncan took that team, they all went away, and then he took the next team, including the 30th pick in the first round, Tony Parker, took the next team and kept them in the playoffs and made them champions over and over, five NBA championships over the course of his career. And that is something – you just don't see. I mean, when a bunch of guys retire, usually what happens is the star player gets traded somewhere else while the team he was on rebuilt. The Spurs didn't do that. They did a brilliant job of, uh, I mean, coaching was great. The front office was great, drafting incredible players, even with not super high picks. And Tim Duncan, being who he was, made that team uh really the the phoenix that rises out of the fire of all the stuff that was going wrong when the NBA locked out its players. The 1998-99 San Antonio Spurs finished with a 37-13 and record. Remember, they had a shortened season, only 50 games. Um, they finished first in the conference, first in the division, played the Minnesota Timberwolves, 
uh, beat them three games to one in the first round. Then they played the Los Angeles Lakers behind a very young Shaquille O'Neal and Kobe Bryant, and they swept the Los Angeles the Lakers in four games. Then into the conference finals against the Portland Trailblazers. After taking game one, the Spurs trailed 17 points in game two. However, the Spurs made a fourth-quarter run and culminated with a, a game-winning three-pointer uh, three by Sean Elliott. The Spurs, the Spurs swept the Blazers and become the first former uh, ABA team to play in the NBA Finals where they played the New York Knicks. We know how that turned out. The Knicks were the eighth yep. seed. Spurs were the number one seed. Um, interesting roster for the Spurs that year. Uh, Brandon Williams, who was hurt. You had Malik Rose, David Robinson, Will Perdue, uh, Gerard King, Jerome Kersey, his final dance in the NBA. Steve Kerr became the first uh, non-Celtic to win four championships in a row that year. Avery Johnson, Jaron Jackson, Andrew Gaze, Sean Elliott, Mario Welly, Tim Duncan, and Antonio Daniels. Interesting roster. <laughs> Very interesting roster. And if you look at the Western Conference, like we said, the Spurs finished first, Blazers second, Jazz third, Lakers fourth, Houston fifth, Sacramento sixth, Phoenix seventh, Minnesota eighth, Seattle, Golden State, Dallas, Denver, Clippers, and Grizzlies all headed to the lockout. Um, Duncan, the lottery, like yeah. you said, <laughs> you know, Duncan, 21 points per game, two and a half blocks per game, 11 boards. Averaged 39 minutes uh, a game during the regular season. And in the, the playoffs, averaged 23 points a game, two and a half blocks, 11 boards, and 43 minutes per game. So he uh, he certainly carried the load for that first championship. The second – the year after that, though, the he had a good you – know, obviously a good uh, you know, junior season in the NBA, the third year. Had, you know, 1999-2000 season, 74 games, missed 10 games. 23 points a game. His numbers were pretty steady through that first point. But right after this season, though, there was talk about him leaving San Antonio heading down to Orlando. And there was a lot going on with that. The, the Orlando Magic were basically making some moves. They, they brought in Tracy McGrady. They brought in Grand Hill. How close was Tim Duncan to joining that team? I'll tell you how close he was. David Robinson was on vacation in Hawaii and left his family in Hawaii to board a last-minute flight to Orlando to talk Tim Duncan out of signing there because Tim Duncan was the next morning going to sign with the Orlando Magic. So think about that for a minute. David Robinson flies from Hawaii to Orlando, not a short flight. Your family is in Hawaii on vacation. You leave them to go and say, look, Tim, Look what we can be in San Antonio. And Tim ultimately, obviously, decided that David was right and at the last minute, literally, decided not to sign in San Antonio. But that was it. If, if David Robinson stays in Hawaii on vacation, this that we're talking about is very different because Tim Duncan has taken the Orlando Magic to probably multiple championships instead of being a career San Antonio Spurs. And what makes that even more interesting is Grant Hill got hurt at that point. And he was in and out of the lineup, yeah. never really recovered. And, and uh, Tracy McGrady had a great career, but Tracy never made the finals until, actually, never made it out of until, the first round until he until, played with San Antonio his last year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As played, someone who didn't play at all, right? 
<laughs> yeah. He rode the bench That's right funny. to the finals with San Antonio. Isn't it funny how everything lines up eventually? <laughs> but yeah, the training the staff. Really... Um, the training staff in Orlando at that time was not very good. I, I I got to know Grant Hill pretty well and Matt Harpring pretty well, and some of the guys who were really struggling with injuries that were in Orlando. And to a man, they all say they were they were not giving us enough time to recover. They were not giving us the treatment that we needed. It was kind of a hurry up and get back mentality instead of being, okay, look, we need to make sure you're good, that you're well, uh, and thinking long-term big picture. It was more short-term thinking. And uh, Grant Hill never did get healthy until he left Orlando and wound up in Phoenix, where the Suns uh, had a very, very good training staff. They even extended Shaquille O'Neal's career later. But the Suns had a great training staff. And, uh, you know, Orlando just didn't. So that caused a lot of problems for the Magic, that uh, that short-term thinking type mentality. I don't know the next time we're really going to have the opportunity to talk about him, so let's let's take a minute to do it. What about, what, you said you had a nice relationship with Grant Hill. What was Grant's reaction to what happened to him in Orlando? Did he look at it as a missed opportunity? Because he was playing great in Detroit, and he had this yep. amazing opportunity to be the man there. And he made this move to Orlando, and then his, pretty much his career got derailed until he went over to Phoenix. Can you talk about what that was like for him? You know, he was in and out of the lineup, never really seemed to be healthy. They never got really what it was supposed to be with him and Tracy together. What was that like? What was the situation? No, that's, that's absolutely right. It was, for him, it was just like it was for fans. It was, wow, I went there thinking, and, and Grant also was aware that Tim Duncan w- was going to sign there. It was Tim's intention. Grant knew that. And so he, he like everybody else, was like, wow, if you get Tim Duncan here with the rest of this team, nobody's going to beat Orlando. So those two things happened. One, Tim didn't sign there, which left Orlando the P- Z piece, the main piece, not there. And then the injuries. And so for Grant, it was all about that disappointment. The, the disappointment that fans felt was ten times greater because here you're a player. You were supposed to be Robin to his Batman. Like you're and, – and, you know, Grant Hill was – people don't remember this maybe. He was an incredible player. Uh, and to have him with that, that core group would have just been mind-blowingly good if they were healthy. So you don't get Tim Duncan, then you get hurt. You never get healthy in Orlando. It's one of those situations where you just you have one picture in your head of what's going to transpire, but something else happens that's beyond your control, and that dream is never realized. And it's a shame too of what he could have been. And like you said, he finished off his career in Phoenix and did a really nice job. And it felt like it was a little bit of a redemption for him because he showed he was able to offer his game up and play a little bit better and to finish off his career with the Phoenix Suns. But, yes, you can't help but wonder what that what that trio of McGrady, Duncan, and Hill could have been together in Orlando. That would have been – that really would have been the first real super team uh, in the NBA. Yeah, it really would have. With the first one where all the guys were in their primes, you know, because uh, we talked about a couple yeah. weeks ago the Barkley, Drexler, Olajuwon, but none of them were in their prime anymore. <laughs> And Barkley was a chemistry killer, uh, so uh, that was tough. But, yeah, those three guys in their primes, that would have been the first super team at a time where everybody was still 
at the you know at that level of the championship level, uh, and any one of them could have led the team on any given night. I just think, wow, that of all the things we could have seen, we might have seen in the history of the NBA, that team would have been really interesting. Even though we saw an incredible, I mean, hey, the Spurs. Look, you can say woulda, coulda, shoulda, but the Spurs were absolutely phenomenal uh, after that with Duncan back in the in the lineup. So. You know, we saw it. We saw greatness. We saw three stars, uh, not a super team because in that sense because the Spurs did draft two of the guys. Well, I mean, they drafted all three. But uh, Manu Ginobili, Tony Parker, and Tim Duncan are one of the great trios to ever play the game, as evidenced by their – they never missed the playoffs, and they won the championship every other year. Yeah, and, and that's one of the things we're going to jump to in a second. But I have to ask this question. Now, I was up here – in Jersey, and again, around this point is when Jason Kidd got here uh, with the Nets. During the 2001-2002 mm-hmm. season, uh, Tim Duncan was awarded the league MVP, averaging 25 points a game, two and a half blocks, 12.9, uh, so pretty much 13 rebounds a game. I always hate when you do the point nine. Just say it's 13. Um, <laughs> play, uh, play, play, if you've gotten one more games. rebound, just anywhere, one game, one night, one more rebound. <laughs> it would have it been great. So Duncan got the MVP, but my question to you is you look at that season, the 0-1-0-2 season, the finals ended up being the Nets and the Lakers with what Jason Kidd was able to do with the Nets at that point. Do you feel that was fair to give Duncan the award or was Kidd the real MVP at that point? Well, the thing is, and, and we talk about this every year in NBA circles, the MVP award is for the regular season. Right. You know, there's a different, there's finals MVP, which Tim Duncan has a couple of those trophies too. There's finals MVP for a reason, because the player who is the greatest player on the best team during the regular season is typically your finals MVP, or is typically your season MVP. Those votes are cast before the playoffs start, even though they don't announce it until, you know, I mean, whenever they announce it in July or now, they, they draw it out. But those votes are cast before the playoffs start. And, uh, you know, so then what happens in the playoffs, it's a separate MVP award. You know, I think that's right and good. And Tim Duncan was amazing. You know, like there are always amazing players. Um, it's not the first time the MVP of the league for that year didn't win the finals MVP or maybe didn't even get to the NBA finals. Uh, that's why it's two different awards. Well, yes. I mean, Tim Duncan got 50% of the vote. Jason Kidd got 45% of the vote for first first place for the uh, MVP. I'm just looking about look what look if they, if you took Jason Kidd away from that Nets team, that team is back in the lottery. You take yeah. Duncan <laughs> off of that team in San Antonio. You know what I mean? You take Duncan off of that team in San Antonio. They're probably still lurching around that seventh or eighth spot in the playoffs. So yeah, they were. They I'm would just, have been. I'm just. So I'm just saying sometimes even the voters don't get it right. I mean, we were all sitting there saying in, uh, around the Nets around that point in time, sitting there saying, you know, if it wasn't New Jersey, <laughs> maybe it would have gone a little bit different. But that's nor here nor there. Um, so Those before, things, though, the MVP is in. always it's always political. There's always, I mean, like last year, I could tell you James Harden was MVP. You'd like you'd be like, yeah, oh, he had an amazing year. He had all those fifty-point games, blah blah blah. He had a Jordan-esque year. 
I could say Russell Westbrook's MVP average a triple double. There's no question about that. There's always uh, four or five guys that you could say were there's just no there's no argument against, you know. Uh, and so yeah, I, I, that's true. That's true every year, and that was certainly true. Like you're talking about with the Jason Kidd, Tim Duncan, that they were both. You know, hey, Jason Kidd was the best player in the Eastern Conference, and Tim Duncan was the best player in the West. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 no doubt, no doubt about that. At that point, um, going around here too, what was the general feeling around the league around that point with uh, San Antonio with the Spurs? I know you were down in Houston at that point in time. What was it like with San Antonio? Was it the feeling of this is this is just before they won championship number two, the following year against Jason Kidd in New Jersey? You're around three years removed from your last championship. Did it feel like the San Antonio act was getting a little old at that point with Robinson and Duncan? Elliott was already gone. Avery Johnson was there. Tony Parker was just getting there in uh, 2001, 2002, 2003, around that time frame. What was the general feeling around the league around this point with the Spurs? Well, it's not hard to to see what the league thought of the Spurs, because as you look around the league, how many teams uh, have front office personnel who came out of the San Antonio system, like Dennis Lindsay in Utah? Um, you know, how many how many teams have head coaches or coaching staff? Uh, the Milwaukee Bucks had the best record in the NBA last year. Who was their head coach? Coach Bud, the, he was Popovich's top assistant. Um, you know, as you look around the league, there are many people who are in either coaching or front office positions who came out of San Antonio. And the reason is everybody wants to emulate what the Spurs have done over the last 20 years. They want to create um, a situation where you have a coach who has uh, complete authority and the players listen and uh, what the coach says goes, and there you don't don't you dare speak against the coach. Like, let the guy that's the expert uh, do what he's best at doing, uh, and then look at what the the front office has done forever with Popovich. Is he says I want this guy, that guy, you know, let's get this person in free agency, and they go and get him. And if somebody gives Popovich a hard time in the locker room or something, they're gone. Like the Stephen Jackson, you know, his second stint in San Antonio started complaining about minutes, he was gone immediately. <laughs> you know, so I think the way that the Spurs went about their business, which was in a very, there was no ego, there was never a, a scandal type story uh, ever. I mean, the Spurs were the consummate and are the consummate professional franchise. The players are held to a higher standard. Uh, and they recognize that when you get to San Antonio, hey, players know they've played with Popovich, you know, and Team USA and, and in other venues and and the, and the word of mouth from other players. Look, when you get to San Antonio, you better not take a play off and you better do exactly what Popovich tells you to do. And if you do, you'll be a very good team. And so uh, the rest of the league took notice. They took notice of it then and they continue to take notice. Uh, even though the Spurs are currently without um, really their their Batman, they've got DeRozan, who is a good second option. They've got Lamarcus Aldridge, who's always busy looking to defer to someone else, and they have a good supporting staff. Uh, but of course, to their uh, defense, the team was built around Kawhi Leonard, 
who screwed them over big time and then screwed over the Raptors <laughs> big time. Uh, so it's not really the Spurs' fault that they're not still in contention. They would be uh, – I mean, they would have won last year if, uh, I believe, if Kawhi had stayed in San Antonio. I believe that too, actually. Moving forward to the 2002-2003 season, they defeat the New Jersey Nets in the NBA Finals. And sort of, I guess, you know, at that point in time, the Lakers had won three championships in a row. They defeated the Lakers in the Western Conference Finals. No, I'm sorry. They, they defeated the Lakers in the second round of the finals and defeated the Dallas Mavericks in the Western Conference Finals. So no matter what, the Nets were going to Texas no matter what <laughs> for, for, the, uh, for the finals yep. that year. Uh, that ended up being David Robinson's swan song, uh, Steve Kerr's swan song. Talk about that second championship. Did that sort of um, validate Duncan at that point in time? Is that is – that, the championship that everyone sort of said, all right, you know what, we can now start putting him on that level. The first championship wasn't a fluke on a shortened season. Was this the championship that did it, or do you think it was the third championship that did it? It might have been the second. I mean, admittedly, there was a lot of thought, uh, and I remember even as a Rockets fan, like, oh, that's not fair, that, that David Robinson misses bulk of that season. The Spurs get the top pick. Then they get David Robinson back. It's like, okay, really? Like, that just was so uh, not fair. But, you know, the second time Duncan wins the championship, it, there was no question that he was the best player on that team. You know, it was not like, oh, he's playing with David. It was very much that uh, he, yes, David was on the team, but David was no longer the yeah, star. He was a role player. He was uh, a, he was a role he, he player. absolutely he was. was a, he he was a player if, in the middle. If Tim Duncan hadn't been and... on that team, if Tim Duncan wasn't on that team, David might have retired before that season. Like you know, he just wasn't at that level anymore. So the fact that David was able to take a secondary role, and as we talked about, his willingness to do that, uh, just created that. Uh, but yes, the second championship was the year where it was like okay. It's not a fluke. It's not, you know, luck or anything else. It bottom line is Tim Duncan has arrived, and it's his team now. That was the 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 I'd say the changing of the guard, the changing of the centers. It was the point where Tim Duncan uh, established that it was his team, and he was a force to be reckoned with, all on his own. And in the second, in the second finals, we also started seeing the emergence. Well, we saw the debut of Tony Parker. And what ended up being the, the one-two punch of Duncan and Parker, how much did those guys end up eventually, you know, I guess need each other? But, you know, because I, I, when I understand it in the beginning, it was a little bit of a rocky start between the two. It was. Um, and, and remember, Tony was the 30th pick, you know, in the draft. This wasn't somebody that you thought, oh, this is going to be a star. But the thing I give Tony credit for, uh, and not every player has this mindset, is that Tony figured out he needed to elevate his game. And he needed to add things. He needed to add the jumper. He needed to, you know, and, and the Spurs hired Chip England to work with him. And he, it became where early in Tony's career, if he was anywhere from about 18 feet out, you're backing off and crowding Tim Duncan going, yeah, go ahead, buddy. Shoot the ball. Go ahead, Tony. You shoot it. And uh, not too long after that, Tony got to the point working with Chip England 
to where you couldn't leave him open. He'd hit a three, you know. And so I think when you consider that Tony reinvented his game, uh, and the Spurs, let's be honest, the Spurs put him in a position and gave him the, the coaching that he needed and gave him the, the situation that he needed to do that and establish the expectation, and he lived up to it. So I think, you know, where Tony comes in, 30th pick in the draft, and it's really Timmy's team, to where Tim went, okay, it's our team. Uh, you know, there again, you've got a player who is a superstar, an incredible player, able to recognize that, you know, you can't do it alone. No player, no matter how great. Jordan went nowhere before uh, Scottie Pippen came along. You know, you no matter how great you are individually, you don't win championships individually. You just don't. Shaq never won a championship individually. He won championships with Kobe, and he won championships with Dwayne Wade. No one, no matter how great, does it individually. And so for Tim to recognize that and to recognize that Tony could be that guy, and for Tony to put in the work to be that guy and earn that respect, uh, you know, how many teams, I don't know, to have a superstar who is also selfless, uh, to have a situation where a guy who is the best player at his position can go, okay, I but I don't I can't do it all. I need help, and this kid has a lot of talent, and let me bring him along. Uh, or I don't know, Timmy. It was more like let let Greg Popovich bring him along, and and I'll play off of him and play with him. And, and uh, you know that's that's one of the things that's just so. Uh, yeah, I mean, you can't help but admire that about the Spurs, that you had this collection of players who were all so good, who were also not above adapting and not above learning and not above deferring when the situation called for it. And also that, that year, too, saw the emergence of Manu Ginobili as well. And between Absolutely. the three of them, obviously, obviously with that crew, you had, you know, Four championships, you know the Spurs with, with Duncan. You know, we talk about the Patriots on how they just don't lose. We talk about yeah. this run of, <laughs> of playoffs. You know, we, we talk about the run mm-hmm. of playoffs. The Spurs are right there in that conversation too, which is absolutely breathtaking and amazing in my eyes. Because there's, there's, I think their streak is even better than the Patriots' streak at this point. The Spurs have not missed the playoffs since '97, '98. And we're 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 isn't close so to, isn't the Patriots streak twenty two? I I, I have because to look this is the, the year. If the Spurs, if the Spurs win it this year, it's twenty three, and it's the all time most consecutive years for a team. Right now they're tied, and I think it's with the Patriots, but I'm not sure. They're tied with twenty two with some other sport because the previous record, as I mentioned, was twenty one with the Utah Jazz under Jerry Sloan for the NBA. But there's a team in another sport that has 22. And Dallas was right with them up until a couple of years ago. Oh, yeah. The Mavs, yeah. The Mavs, well, yeah, the Mavs are right there. That's not, a, that's not a coincidence because up until a couple no. of years ago, you could put uh, 10, 11 D-League players around Dirk Nowitzki and he'd take them to the playoffs. And there were a couple of years where that's pretty much what they did, too. Uh, you know, Dirk only had a great team around him a couple of times, and he took them to the finals twice, 
and won the championship the second time. Uh, but there were a lot of years where Dirk, it was like, okay, who's left in free agency? We'll just take everybody and put them around Dirk. And between Dirk and Rick Carlisle, they made something out of it uh, that any other player wouldn't have been able to, to do. Dirk, Dirk too, Dirk Nowitzki's greatness is really, I don't think, recognized outside of Dallas and Germany because of the way he quietly went around, went about his business too. But that's a subject for another podcast. Well, I was going to say, Dirk, we will, we'll definitely have a Dirk episode. We might have to have two Dirk episodes. Uh, I have a feeling we're going to have to do two Duncan episodes. I'm not sure if we're going to be able to make it through uh, with all of it. But, um, <laughs> in 03, in 03 04, the, the Spurs lost in the conference finals to the Los Angeles Lakers. I think, no, I'm sorry, that was the second round to the, to the Lakers. And I will tell you, man, um, that, that was the Laker team that had Gary Payton, Carl Malone, Kobe Bryant, Shaquille O'Neal. And right. you're sitting there just going, now, man, you're just sitting there going, that series was, was, a, was a, a boxing match, even though it only went six games. You, you, there was so many last-second shots. That game one might be one of the best game ones. That was with the Derek Fisher shot where he turned around. Yep, and just, from the corner. Yep. Oh. I was at that so game. Just, yes, sir. <laughs> that was an, That was a – a haymaker fight right there. That was just, man, punch yep. after punch. Duncan hit that crazy shot. Um, there was something about this every other year thing, because the following year they went back to the finals and they played the Detroit Pistons. And what they considered, some people considered that NBA final series, the series that set the league back 30 years with the, with the defense <laughs> that was played. <laughs> it was, but it was, it was a incredible. That went seven. That finals was great. And I and I love defense. The I grew up watching the Rockets and Akeem Olajuwon, of course, uh, arguably the greatest defender of all time, the the all time league leader in block shots. You, you know that team was a knockdown drag out. Uh, if you were going to score on the Rockets, you were going to feel it after the game. You're going to need some ice <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> And, and, of course, Hakeem just had the ability to block any – if you shot anywhere inside the three-point line and maybe at a three-point line, you know, he's going to get his finger on it. Just incredible. But So I grew up watching defense and loved defense and don't care too much for the league now. Every, not, everything's a foul. You're not allowed to guard anybody. Well, the crying. But, uh, yeah, that – so I loved it, that series. Uh, other than I, of course, was pulling for San Antonio. But uh, that series, the defense was, and, and the big, I mean, just big shots, uh, crazy shots, you know, well-defended shots that went down, uh, just, you know, everything you could ask for in a, in a series, you saw in that series. And, and, and not only that, but the big names on both sides. You know, you had superstars on both sides and uh, just, <laughs> you know, one for the ages. Talk about that next NBA Finals, the 2006-2007 against the Cleveland Cavaliers. The Cavaliers really had no business being there. You want to talk about that? You know, we, we, we sometimes question the greatness of LeBron James. At that point in time, LeBron was just playing inhuman and during the Eastern Conference Finals pretty much took his team on his back. And that team had no business being in the NBA Finals that year. Well, when you have a transcendent star, and LeBron had not arrived yet, but he was 
I mean, he came into the league. You know, they'd already dubbed him the king before he ever came into the NBA, which maybe that might have set him back, uh, you know, early on because he, I don't think he appreciated having been around him quite a few times, more times than I could stand early in his career. I got to the point where if he was walking toward me, I'd turn and walk the other way just to avoid him because he was such an asshole. But, uh, you know, I think uh, when you are a transcendent star, you can get past a lot of things. You can you can blow by a lot of hurdles, um, and that's what we saw LeBron do. Though he had, you know, there were good pieces around him. A lot of guys contributed, but you had the one guy that was so much better than most of the players in his conference um, that that was, you know, that's what we saw. That's how they got there. When, like you say, on paper, you're like, mm, maybe not. Well, you know, what made that very interesting, too, was, you know, they beat Detroit. Uh, I think some people felt that was going to be another Detroit uh, Spurs finals, which the league was begging for not to yeah. happen. Uh, the, the league was happy that LeBron <laughs> made the finals that year. But around this time, too, and this is something that we had, you know, one thing we really haven't talked about, Duncan was not the most animated player. <laughs> no. He didn't you know, even like to dunk the ball. The, yeah. You know, he like, had no he personality. Animated... Yeah. No, no personality. Let's, let's, talk, let's talk about Didn't... this. Let's talk about this part of it with the media because he did not talk to the media. That's right. So you're on one of the smallest markets. You're on a team that's in one of the smallest markets in the league, and you don't want to talk to the media. The, the Spurs would just pay his fine because it's a fine. I think it's $25,000 if you don't make yourself available to the media at some point, pre or post game, and the Spurs would pay that fine for him and just not make him available. So if you're the NBA, that's a nightmare, <laughs> you know, because here you are trying to market your your uh, your finals, and any other time, like Kobe's more than happy to give you a great quote. Shaq, of course, will make some stupid comment that everybody can use as a headline. Uh, LeBron too, like, but you get the Spurs, and it's a guy from Argentina and a guy from France and a superstar who won't talk. And when he talks, says, no matter how many words he uses, he says nothing, <laughs> you know, and your head coach won't justify most questions with a response. I mean, he's more likely to, especially the inane, like end of the first quarter, Hey, you're down four. What do you have to do? Uh, yeah. It turns and walks away. Right. Like <laughs> as much as, he made my job a pain in the ass sometimes, but I loved Greg Popovich because uh, he did not justify bad questions. He would just be like, no. So you have a team that's incredibly good, but not marketable outside of San Antonio. Like Nobody cares about them outside of San Antonio at all. So it was kind of a nightmare scenario for the league. Oh, and it's funny is I didn't realize that until – the 2007, 2008, 2009 time frame when I was doing some work covering the Knicks, and I covered the Knicks and the Spurs at the Garden, and I'm like, there is no media here. They're like, how is there no media here for the Spurs? And it's just like it's because there's not, they're just not a story. They're just, they, they were just not a story for the, yep, for the Spurs. And that's just pretty much what it was. And when I walk into the locker room, because – you can explain this too. If it's a seven seven thirty game, locker room opens up at five thirty, and you have you have forty five minutes to go between the two locker rooms and try and get as much audio as you can. 
and I walk into the Spurs yep. locker room and I asked, and I asked is, is I gave them obviously I said Duncan, Ginobili, Parker. And I started going down the list and like, yep, he doesn't talk pregame. He doesn't talk pregame. You're not going to find him pregame. He doesn't even do postgame. They're like, they're going down the list. I'm like, so who do we got? And they gave me like the four guys at the end of the bench who they required to have sitting in the locker room because they need to have somebody talk pregame. <laughs> That's right. So, and none of them are relevant. None of them are, are going to drive any page views. No one, none of them drive any interest outside of San Antonio, of course. And, you know, <laughs> I, how many times did I do that? I'd go down to San Antonio to cover games if the Mavs were on the road. Uh, but I always made sure that it was a visiting team that I wanted to see because I knew you walk into the Spurs locker room, you're getting Matt Bonner, <laughs> you know, you're getting uh, guys that, that, I mean, it was funny one time, who was I talking to? Somebody that had been in Dallas, total bench rider. Uh, and I went down and I walked in and he's sitting there. He's the only one in the locker room, Spurs locker room. And I just started talking because we knew each other from Dallas. Who was that? And uh, Tom James, who the head of PR for the Spurs, was like, you didn't ask me in advance if you could speak to him. And I was like, I'm not interviewing him, TJ. I'm just talking, you know, like, it's just the way the Spurs handled their PR. And it was, uh, and when Tim Duncan was there, they just totally, it was like, no, you're not getting anybody. We'll block you. We'll prevent you from doing your job. And it was unreal, you know, but yet the, here they are, the gold standard of the league, and you've got to go. You've got to try to talk to those guys because they're, they're the best, you know, but uh, it, that was something else. They they certainly don't make your job easy for anybody from PR to the players to Popovich, none of them. Uh, now, now Manu and Tony, if you could get them, they were great. They gave you everything you needed, but it was very limited when you could get a hold of those guys. Yeah, I remember uh, I'm not, when I emailed the Spurs PR, I was about to say his name. Um, but when I was, you know, first reaching out saying I want to try and do this one for a foundation piece, I want to do this, this, like, they just don't do it. Yeah, no, <laughs> so like, unless not you're interested. Down, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, unless you're down here in San Antonio, nope, it ain't happening. I'm like, all right, well, I'm trying. <laughs> but, no, but, like, you start understanding why now. It's like, okay, it's just, it's just the way it is. Like, you even watch the, the Spurs games and Popovich talking between the quarters. It's, it's yeah. now become a comical thing. It's it's a comical thing now watching Popovich do the talk with um with with the sideline reporter. Well, it used to be Craig Sager, but then it was you know between quarters now. Yeah, David Aldridge or who, whoever you know whoever is unfortunate enough to have to do that. I'll tell you the funniest yeah, Craig Popovich moment. So I was in Charlotte covering a Bobcats game, and it just happened to be the Spurs, which was funny because I'd see the Spurs all the time. So Pop looks at me and goes, Bill, what are you doing here? You're a long way. You came a long way to see us. I was like, nah, you know, whatever. So then we we start doing the thing, and the AT guy asked, and it was a game that the Spurs had won in, like, the closing seconds. Boris Diaw, who had played for the Spurs but was with Charlotte at that time, had missed a shot, and it was a last-minute thing. And the Spurs had won, but they should have won, like, I mean, it was when the Spurs were so good and the Bobcats were, you know, not. And so the AP guy goes, could you, could you describe that last sequence, what was supposed to happen, and, you know, the block and this and that. And Popovich looks at him and goes, I don't, I don't understand what you're asking me. And the AP guy, completely unfazed by any of Popovich's antics, said, 
I just could you run down that last play? It was kind of a broken play. What was supposed to happen there? And Pop looks at him totally blank. I don't get. Are you asking me a question? I don't. I don't understand what you're asking. And the guy just keeps going. Like, well, I'm just asking if you could describe that last uh, play. What was supposed to happen? It looked like it was a broken play. Could you describe that? And Pop's like, What do you want me to be like a like a play-by-play guy? You want me to be like like an auctioneer? Like anyway, and Pop is doing this whole like and he's like one shot, and then he's like. And the AP guy's like, unperturbed, no, I would just like you to describe the play. So then Pop does give him the answer, like, well, it was supposed to be this, and that didn't happen, so we kicked it out. And <laughs> But it's like what you had to go through to get that, just the answer that you needed from him, uh, he, he could be torturous, you know. Uh, I always spent more time, there were two guys I always prepped more for. If I needed something, I would spend a lot more time prepping than for anybody else was Greg Popovich and Kobe Bryant. Because if you ask a good question, you get amazing stuff. But if you go in with some crappy question that you haven't really thought through, you're getting shut down completely. Yeah, and and I always love during the finals, after games, whatever the final game of the series is, that's when Pop and Kobe and those guys eventually open up. Because they know it's over. Yeah. And, 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 you, you, saw, and you saw with, with Pop, with Craig Sager and Craig Sager's son, that he does it on purpose. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, oh, totally. He just does it. Yeah, he just does it on purpose. So that's it's a game to that's him. Just, yeah, to Popovich, completely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's great. So let's let's jump back into to Tim. So Tim, you told me a great story that that Tim on purposely just doesn't talk to the media and the Spurs just pick up the fines from the league. Can you talk about the requirements for the players having to talk to the media? Well, the, the teams do have to make their players available either pregame or postgame uh, for X amount of time. It's not the full 45 minutes, but because there's, as you mentioned earlier, 45 minutes before and after the game is media availability. Now, typically before the game, you're not getting a star player. Typically after the game, you're it's a scrum type situation where you're person number 18 and a mad, you know, everybody's sticking their hand in trying to get a quote. Um, and, but you have to make your players available. And if you don't, then there's a fine. The players have to be available. They find the player. So if Tim Duncan's not available, they find the player. They find Tim Duncan. But Tim didn't want to be available, and the Spurs enabled that, and they said, look, we'll just pay your fine. So all these games, uh, sometimes Tim would be available, and, but, he would, but it would be very short, and he wouldn't really say anything. Uh, beyond three or four words, and then he would go away. Well, there, he was available. But there were many games where he, they just never did make him available, and the league would find him, and it would, the report would come out. The Spurs have paid the $25,000 fine for Tim Duncan, who did not address the media after Tuesday night. <laughs> you know, like, that was just kind of like, I guess they had a Tim Duncan budget to just pay his fine all the time. So, uh, But even when he was available... I mean, I was around him so many times, and, like, he didn't chat. He's not someone who would, you could just, like, with Dirk, many times we'd be in the locker room, and I would just, we'd just be talking, you know, and just very personable and fun. I mean, Dirk off camera is much more fun than Dirk on camera. Uh, you know, on camera, he's very straight, like, oh, well, 
obviously we played hard and obviously we hit the good shot and obviously we won. It was great. And obviously Jason Terry did and obviously, but when the camera goes off, he's like, what's up bitches? Like totally a totally different personality. Uh, and you see that with a lot of players, uh, but not with Duncan with Duncan. When the camera was off, he was not there. You did not like stand there and talk to him off the record, off camera. He, that you just didn't do that. Uh, and it was unlike anything I saw, again, Kobe, name anybody, Brandon Roy, Akeem, Yao Ming, uh, all the you know, McGrady, the great player Shaq. Uh, the cameras go off. You can stand there and be like, man, did you see that shot? So, you know, so-and-so hit last night. Blah, blah. Yeah, I couldn't believe that. Just talking about the game, right? Not on the record, just chatting with a guy. Two guys talking about sports that they both are interested in. You could you can do that with so many players in the league, but Tim Duncan, not one time did I ever see him. He just evaporated. The moment any required, like, all-star, where uh, he couldn't avoid all-star. All-star, he had to be there, and I covered the all-star game many years. He had to do the media time. There was no option not to, but he would do it for a very short period of time, and he would just get up and walk away. And the, t- the questions he answered, he did not answer them in a way that it was anything you could really use. He just, so he said, of he all the players the over all the years, he, he just didn't, there just was no value to trying to talk to Tim Duncan. So he, he treated it like the Derek Jeter thing. You know, Derek Jeter, would the old expression was, he lets you on the patio, but he won't let you in the house. <laughs> yeah, and Tim would let you on the patio, but he'd have a shotgun aimed at your chest. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, just... well, <laughs> well, let's let's talk about it. Let's talk about that for a second. You know, you, you talk about All Star Weekend. Tim Duncan, obviously, uh, multi year All Star. Talk about his experiences that you got to cover out there. What kind of person was Tim when he was around the guys? You never, I, I never once saw him around the guys. Never once. Because by the time we were allowed in, he just wasn't there. I mean, it's it's the most unbelievable thing. Not one time did I ever, like, walk in and go, wow, look, Tim's just, like, hanging out talking to Kobe here. Tim, never. It's like when the, when the locker rooms opened, he completely disappeared. Now, I'm sure behind the scenes, uh, you know, I know like LaMarcus Aldridge. I've known LaMarcus for years. I know that Tim is great with LaMarcus because LaMarcus has told me. But I've never seen Tim be great with LaMarcus. You know, like I know that <laughs> LaMarcus leaned on Tim for advice and worked on his game and that sort of thing. But which is why the Spurs have brought, you know, he's going to be a coach this year. Um, but to see it myself, never one time. I don't ever remember seeing Tim Duncan ever in a moment, a human moment where you're like, wow, look, there's Tim. Like he's actually talking to somebody. Never. I don't. And I did dozens, dozens and dozens and dozens of games in San Antonio or with San Antonio when they were somewhere else and never, never saw Tim just chilling, like talking to someone. He didn't even like some of the, most of the players, after they've done their media time, like the press conference, 
they're still at their locker getting dressed and getting ready to, you know, putting their shirts on and all that. Uh, Tim didn't do that. As soon as it was, he went back and did that somewhere else back in the players only area. He did not, you just did not see him. He was not available in any capacity ever that I saw. Now with Tim, obviously that, that was those two years in a row of playing the Miami Heat in the uh, NBA Finals. I felt the first year when the Heat beat them, I actually felt that was a back-to-back championship year because I felt like the, the Spurs got robbed. Uh, damn that Ray Allen. Because LeBron was LeBron showed his shortcomings in that playoff se- that final series against the Spurs. Because he was struggling, struggling, struggling. And when he came to taking the big shot, LeBron still would have took it. If it wasn't for Ray Allen, <laughs> Ray Allen hitting that three. Yeah, well, yep, there's no question. In fact, the, the Heat shouldn't have been there. Um, it was funny because that was uh, the year Indiana was so good around Paul George. And the, the Pacers had them on the ropes. Paul George owned LeBron James. At that point, when when Paul was in his prime, before that just horrible injury, um, Paul owned LeBron. But the Spurs had already advanced to the finals, and the uh, Pacers were playing the Miami Heat in the Eastern Conference Finals and had the upper hand. And my sister, who lives in San Antonio, big Spurs fan, was like, it's going to be Indiana – San Antonio, we're going to have two teams that have never met in the finals. It's going to be really exciting. And I said, no, let me explain something to you. The NBA is a business. The moment the Spurs made it to the finals, it guaranteed that the Indiana Pacers were going to lose that series. So I said, here's what's going to happen. Next game, Paul George is going to pick up two quick fouls right away, inside of the first three minutes of the first quarter. He's going to have two fouls. He's going to have to sit the rest of the first quarter. Then – He'll start the second quarter, and he'll pick up another quick foul right away, and he'll be out the whole first half. And by the time he gets to play in the third quarter, the Heat will be so far ahead that even Paul George can't bring them back. With one minute left, uh, one minute played in the second quarter, my phone rings, and it's my sister. And she says, how the F did you know that? Because Paul George (laughs) had picked up two fouls in the first two minutes, and then he picked up a foul right away in the second quarter and was benched. And my sister was like, how did you? I said, because the NBA is a business. You hear the players say it all the time, but unless you know what they're talking about, maybe you don't get it. The NBA can't allow Indiana and San Antonio to be in the NBA finals because only two markets will watch those games. If you have LeBron, now you've got a whole lot of people watching the series that aren't in Miami just because, oh, LeBron, he's the marquee name. But if it's Indiana, if it's Paul George versus Tim Duncan, nobody wants to watch that. Nobody in terms of – I mean, I would have loved it. It would have been a great series. But in terms of the the general NBA viewing audience, they're tuning out. <laughs> and so what you have is two of the smallest markets in the league watching the finals and everybody else watching reruns of Cheers or whatever instead of watching because they don't care. I was waiting for you to bring up the Cheers thing. I had to bring it up because you sent me those Funko Pop pictures of Norm and Cliffy and, and Sam. And I mean, oh, if I needed more crap sitting around my house, 
<laughs> well, I don't have room for it with all my Olajuwon gear. Uh, <laughs> well, that's the thing, though, right? You're just sitting there. You're like, like George Carlin always used to say, your house is a place to put your stuff while you go out and get more stuff. <laughs> yeah. So. Yep. But if you watch this, there's this great documentary on Netflix about minimalism, and it really inspired me to get rid of crap because I'm like, I just have all this stuff gathering dust. Why? And I certainly don't need more stuff gathering dust. Of course, I have an eight-year-old. That doesn't help. She always needs more stuff gather dust. But me, uh, myself, personally, I I could get rid of a lot of the stuff that's gathering dust and really not miss it. <laughs> but even still, I thought, wow, those Funko Pops from the Cheers crew, oh, maybe a little more dust wouldn't hurt. <laughs> Well, let's let's we we want to talk about going off the rails. We we we've gone off the rails on this one. <laughs> but like, <laughs> let's, let let me let me, uh, let me let me try to get us back here. So let's talk about that uh, two years of playing the Miami Heat. Um, LeBron and company really, you know, they that that team was a very very strange team. And looking at them that second year when the Spurs manhandled them because. I honestly felt once the Spurs got into the NBA Finals that year, Popovich had that team ready to go. Oh, yeah. Popovich well, had and they had team. not forgotten had, the year before. <laughs> yeah, they had not forgotten the year before. They were ready, and they and they really put a beating on them. And it felt like – I'll tell you what it felt like for, from a Miami standpoint. You had guys like Ray Allen and Haslam, Wade, and Bosch. They just looked – Tired. LeBron was, looked like he was fighting for his life out there, and I think that's. I think during that final game when LeBron went to the bench, he went back there and he basically said, "I can't. I'm not going to. Not going to go back to a Cleveland situation where I was where I'm carrying a team." Of course, the next year he goes back to Cleveland. Kevin Love gets hurt. Kyrie <laughs> gets hurt, and he's carrying a team in the in the NBA Finals. Yeah. But you know what I mean. I think LeBron felt like this thing in Miami where it's him and even his friends, Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh were not pulling their weight anymore. So you just look at LeBron just saying, I don't think he wants to do this anymore in Miami. And that's what it felt like from a Spurs perspective. That's what the Spurs did though. The Spurs ripped your heart out. I mean, they, they absolutely, you know, the Spurs had the head game, right. They had the physical game, right. They had the, you know, their own game, right. It's why that mental toughness of the Spurs is why Greg Popovich, when he called a timeout, he would then go sit down and let the players talk. And one time somebody asked him, and he actually answered the question, and he said, they know what, they're, what they did wrong. If they need me to tell them, then we have a bigger problem. Because he called timeout, and they, the players would talk about it. Tony or Tim or Manu, they would, one of them would lead the discussion, and they fixed it because they knew. And that- and that's why he didn't like a lot of rookies. <laughs> that's why Popovich just didn't want a lot of rookies on that team. He oh yeah, because they made rookie had... mistakes. Yeah, and Pop didn't have a lot of like, patience for that. Center. That happens in. He's like, you go to Austin and make those mistakes with the Toros. You ain't making those mistakes here. <laughs> well, not only that, but he also looked at it and basically said to them, "Give me a lot of veteran guys, and we're good. We're good with a lot of veteran guys." I'll take a couple of young guys here and there, but I don't want a lot of them. Just give me a couple, give me a couple of young guys, give me a bunch of vets, 
you know, guys like Boris Diaw and Nazi Muhammad and those guys like that all played so well mm-hmm. there because they were all veteran guys and playing under with other veterans. It's a shame that Tony was never being able to show what he could do as far as a leader of that team because he was towards the end of his career he was so so uh, so banged up. Yeah. You know, it's a shame, but man, and and I guess now we have to because we're running out of time. Let's talk about the exit here of uh, Tim Duncan in the league. That he never had a formal announcement that he was done. The team was sort of favored to knock out the Thunder. That was the year the Thunder lost to the Warriors, which ended up being Kevin Durant's last year in Oklahoma City. But mm-hmm. that year, the Spurs were favored to knock out the Thunder. They blew out the Thunder in games in Game One. And never really recovered after that. And it was sort of like the ending. And Tim Duncan just walked away quietly in the night. And he even said in interviews, to quote, um, you know, he can just as easily have stayed. And, but it just wasn't, it wasn't as fun anymore. It wasn't, he wasn't enjoying it as much. And he knew it was that time to walk away. And he just he opted into his contract and then retired. So he's not, he's yep. also proved that he's the smartest guy in the room too. So, you know. Yeah. So, so your so your take on the on Tim's Tim's decision to walk away. Well, I think there's something to be said for walking away while you're still on top of your game. We talked about this with Clyde Drexler a couple of weeks ago. Clyde still had plenty of game left. I think what he averaged like 17 points his final season. There's no question he could have played another year or two in a supporting role, but it wasn't fun for him anymore. You know, like when you have a guy that's been the the gold standard of the league for so long and the grind starts to wear on you, it takes a lot to admit uh, that your, your mental toughness is worn down, that you, you, the edge is gone. Um, I'll use a top gun reference since apparently they're making another one of those here pretty soon. But uh, when, when Tom Cruise's character just can't engage, he just can't do it, just can't do it. And he's like, he's going to, he's going to just retire. Um, You know, there's just that edge. And when you lose it, I guess, you know, you recognize that you, you, you've lost it, and you go, okay, I don't want to limp through another season. Some players did. Hell, Akeem did. Akeem uh, went to Toronto for part of a year because they paid him a bunch of money. Carol Dawson begged him. He told me this. I, I begged Akeem not to go there. Go ahead and retire a rocket, and let's have the ceremony and celebrate you because you know you can't play anymore. <laughs> like, don't go there and prove it. But Akeem, I mean, the money was there. Money's money. He went and took the money and proved that he couldn't play anymore. Uh, and didn't even make it through the season. So, you know, I have the utmost respect for a player who is still capable, but just not great anymore, and decides rather than play to the point of just not even being relevant where it's like sad, uh, go ahead and retire while you're still more or less, you know, close to the top of your game. Why not? He, he had nothing else to prove. I mean, we're talking about the greatest, Tim Duncan is the greatest power forward to ever play in the NBA. What else and five championships and all those all-stars and, and MVPs and finals MVPs and what, what did he have to prove? Not a thing. Tim Duncan had nothing left to prove. If you had to go into, I guess, from 2000 on, or maybe, maybe even 1995 on, if you say, give me your big men on the Mount Rushmore, I guess Duncan's number one on that list. Absolutely. In that in that time period, you're talking about Duncan, you're talking about obviously Shaq, you're talking about Kevin Garnett, 
Um, you're probably Chris Weber would be one of the one of the greats there. Um, and well, hell, Dirk. Okay, Dirk's in that time period. So Duncan and Dirk are my top two. Then Shaq, then KG, and I. Gosh, you're gonna leave somebody out, but Chris Weber was one of the one of the great guys during that time too. Yeah, because he was able to do everything. Uh, so just to wrap it up, you know, I'll give my. I think Tim Duncan, I should nickname should have been the Silent Assassin because he was so good and he was probably the best, like you said, the best power forward uh, of our generation. And I think he mentored. He was a great compliment to LaMarcus Aldridge, and I think it's something that they're missing now for him, is missing that that the yin to his yang as far as in the paint. Because Aldridge, for me, Aldridge is afraid, just afraid to get dirty in the paint. He loves shooting that jump shot. He doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't like getting in there and getting dirty. So you, you almost need to have a guy like a Boris Diaw or a, a Muhammad out there with Aldridge to sort of do the dirty work for him. And they really haven't had that since Duncan left. Uh, Duncan was the guy pretty much who put his hard hat on every single game, went to work, did the best he can. He knew that he wasn't going to have the results he wanted almost every night, but more, more often than not, playoffs every single year and helped build that Spurs dynasty. Some people always wondered if, if it was Popovich and Duncan or Duncan and Popovich. Pop's still going to the playoffs, but he's not winning much once he gets there without Tim Duncan. Well, that's right. And it's not only just Duncan, but you just don't have, again, as I said earlier, if Kawhi is still there, I think they won the championship again. Uh, just If you had Kawhi Leonard with, with LaMarcus Aldridge and DeMar DeRozan, that works fine. Well, of course, they got DeRozan as a result of that. But even with but the team that was around him, if you still have Kawhi Leonard, you're back in the finals, probably winning it. But when you take uh, the superstar, like what would San Antonio have been if Tim, if uh, Timmy had gone to Orlando, and then you have David and whatever's left, they're still a good team, probably make the playoffs, certainly not contenders. Um, and that's where you look at the Western Conference this year, and you go, the Spurs just – they do not have the guy. DeRozan's great. He'll he'll give you 30 several times a year. Aldridge is great. He'll give you 25 several times a year. But neither one of those guys in crunch time is going to be like, give me the ball. I'm going to win the game for us. And that's what Tim Duncan was. That's what David was before Tim. Uh, but they just don't have that guy. And you can have – they do have the greatest <laughs> – they have the greatest coach in the history of the game, Greg Popovich, unparalleled. Only Red Auerbach comes close in terms of the NBA. But you don't have the delivery guy. You have a bunch of complimentary players. You have two very good complimentary players, but still complimentary players. And the best coach in the world cannot win a championship without one, at least one guy who, when the game is on the line, takes ownership of that and imposes his will on the game. And Aldridge... And these, we're not talking about young players here. LaMarcus and DeRozan, they're just not those guys, and they're not going to be. So it's very tough for San Antonio, even, I think, with the West being just as crazy deep as it got over the summer. They've got their work cut out for them just making the playoffs. They're certainly not contenders. All right, so that, that's pretty much going to you know, wind it down for 
for Tim Duncan. I know we probably missed a, a little bit here, but I think we did. I, I don't know, Bill. What do you think? We did a pretty good summary of his career here. Given that you don't have any meaningful quotes from him to ever work with, you know, <laughs> it, it's always what you're going to well, say yeah, about I, him and not what he's going to say, right? So. <laughs> yeah, like, but I, like the only the only thing when I when I was doing the research and I was looking for quotes, I couldn't even find stuff from draft night. Uh, but like I don't remember. Was, <laughs> but like what I, what I did find was he, he did a couple of interviews after he retired, and, and that's when I was able to find. He just said it wasn't as much fun anymore, and you know he looked back at his career as um, you know it wasn't about the money; it was about the passion for him. And he basically even said he's like, once it wasn't fun anymore, it was just time to walk away. And Knowing that he said that like that, it's you, you feel he was one of the good guys in the league, and there was many more of him. This league would probably be a lot better place. Absolutely, there's no question that he is what uh, most players should aspire to in terms of professionally, in terms of uh, dedication, in terms of team mentality, team first, uh, and clutch play. I mean, my gosh, that that little turnaround bank shot, <laughs> you know, was just as deadly as the dream shake, as deadly as any bird three, as deadly as anything Jordan did. Uh, you know, that, that bank shot was literally money in the bank when it left his hand. He, he would, he would just rip your heart out if you were the opposing team. And he was one of the few guys who was still using the backboard when he was shooting shots. You, you watch him. He's like, Oh man, he's, he's actually, well, what's the thing that that's, that's Bouncing off before it goes in the bathroom. That kid, that's the backboard. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, that's why they called him the big fundamental because it was all about angles. He understood the angles. He understood it made it hard to block, uh, you know, and heck, he was as good for as long as he was because he wasn't jumping out of the gym every time dunking the ball. He was just taking his little jump shot, little, you know, barely jumping, boom. Uh, didn't, the wear and tear wasn't there. Like, the big fundamental, that's that's uh, that's why the nickname, that's why he got it, why it stuck. Yeah, and he was, again, he, he deserved his MVPs. He was one of the most dominant players in the league, and he was one of the few guys in this league when his skills started to diminish down, he was able to adjust and still be a team guy. And I think that's, what, that's right. how he should be remembered, and it's, now he's going to be able to pass that on. It's going to be interesting to see how he is as a coach. It's something I really can't can't wait to see. Because you do have to communicate, you know, as a coach. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I bet your pop is going to look at him and say, "Wow, I never heard you talk before." <laughs> it could be. <laughs> yeah, it could be. Well, guys, tune in to us every single week here um, at Hoops Talk. He's Bill Ingram. I'm Randy Zelly. Bill, let everybody know where they can find you. Always on Twitter, at the Rocket Guy. Of course, if I'm writing, it's happening at BackSportsPage.com, and you will always find links to those articles uh, going up, as well as the team of people that we are building, aspiring young writers. And, I'm, of course, Randy, you and I are working hard to help some people who are dedicated to uh, working on their craft. And I am always tweeting out their work as well. So you will see not only my direct work, but also the work that we're doing as a team to to build up young writers who are going to be in locker rooms and covering uh, the players who will make themselves available anyway uh, <laughs> throughout the season yeah. in all sports. Uh, so, but in particular, the NBA is what, uh, what I'll be talking about on Twitter at the rocket guy.
And, and we always laugh because we're like, Bill doesn't do hockey or baseball. <laughs> Why is he tweeting that? <laughs> or football. <laughs> Yeah, or football. And Except Astros, I, I expect Randy. to be tweeting a lot of. I expect to be tweeting a lot of baseball because the Astros have a lot, to, a lot of games left to play. So, <laughs> uh, oh, you and I are going to be impossible to deal with when the Yankees play the Astros in the uh, in the playoffs. Oh, God, it's too difficult. Uh, <laughs> and of course, you can find me at Randy BSP. I'm, 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 of course, doing a basketball podcast and covering the New York Football Giants, which season's pretty much over now at O and T and pulling Eli Manning. Uh, but that's another topic for another another show. Uh, of course, backsportspage.com, at backsportspage.com on both Twitter and Instagram. Thank you, guys. We will announce this week's topic uh, probably midweek uh, for next week. Uh, we have some ideas. Some of the ideas that we are throwing out, we're thinking about talking about the 96-97 NBA draft. We're talking about possibly doing Kobe Bryant. Big shot Bob Robert Ori is a show topic, one that I know Bill's looking forward to doing. Um, a topic that Bill hasn't heard this topic idea yet, but it's one that I want to hit on, uh, as I definitely want to do one on Drazen Petrovic. It's uh, a tough one, but I think, you know, I think we definitely can tackle it, but we'll we'll keep everybody surprised. But otherwise until then, Hey Bill, it was a good one. Let's do this again. uh, You know, a week from today. I'll be there. All right. Thanks very much for listening everybody. Thanks for all the great feedback. We're looking forward to it. And have a good one.